Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. We're going to be back in 1 Corinthians this morning. The last couple of sermons we've had together in 1 Corinthians have dealt with the topic of spiritual gifts, right? And we talked about the different spiritual gifts that are presented here in 1 Corinthians 13, and a special thanks to Tegan. Yeah, she really led big time yesterday. That was awesome. Lots of preparation. Sorry. I saw your face and I had to call you out special. Um, we've been talking about spiritual gifts, what they are, you know, how, what the Bible says about them, or even in some cases doesn't say about them. Um, there's a lot of, of the spiritual gifts that are left a little bit ambiguous, but, but some, some word studying and some comparing scripture with scripture gives us some insight. We talked about how each of us are uniquely gifted, right? All of us are very special, that God sees us as special. He sees us uh, as we are in our place and time and in the setting that we're in, and he endows to us spiritual gifts that we might be made most effective in the context of our local churches. And so for all of us, we've been given very special gifts that are, are given to you so that you could bless this body in particular. He wants to use you mightily. He wants to use this church mightily. And when we refuse our spiritual gifts to the local church, when we come and we're pew sitters and we just show up, and, and we're constantly looking for people to serve us, and, and we refuse to serve others, well, then we're rejecting a really awesome opportunity to be a blessing, and, and we're not being everything that God has made us to be. And so we're looking to be unified. We're looking to be made whole as a, as a, as a body and complementing one another in terms of spiritual gifts. Now, <clears throat> at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 27, we are given another list. And so I want to review this list real quick before we get into the meat of our sermon. Uh, here, Paul is giving us, uh, a, a, you know, a kind of recounting some of the spiritual gifts, but he's pointing more towards the responsibilities that come with those spiritual gifts. And so we see mingled in here some offices and very specific roles associated with the gifting. And so let's start in verse 27, and we'll remind, uh, remind ourselves of what some of these things are. <clears throat> now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And God has set, uh, set some in the church. First, apostles. And so what is an apostle? The term apostle means sent one. So an apostle is a specific office that was given to specific first century believers that God used to do miraculous things in order to draw attention to the message of the gospel that was brand new in the world at that time. And so there's an office of apostle, but there are also spiritual gifts like the ability to perform miracles that are associated with that office, okay? So we also see secondarily prophets. The term prophet means one who declares. It's a spokesman for truth. That's what a prophet is. And as we discussed previously, this role often came with the ability to foretell future events. Again, with the, with the goal of drawing attention to the gospel that was still so brand new in a world without a completed Bible, right? Thirdly, we have teachers. <clears throat> now, this is a person who is gifted with the ability to clearly communicate the truths of Scripture, right? It's generally associated with 
a person who has a mind for studying, all right? Someone who, who is prone to study and who has the ability to communicate knowledge in a way that's very clear for us to understand, all right? And so you can even right now, as we're saying these, these types of gifts, when we say a sent one, you know, despite the fact that the office of apostle has now ceased, we know that in our midst, we have the residual gift of apostleship in our missionaries. And so we think about someone like Andrew Ong, we can say he's functioning in a gifting of apostleship. Even though he's not doesn't have the office of apostle, he's still functioning within that gifting because he's one that is sent. He's one that is going to do the work, him and his team as well. <clears throat> Just like that, um, prophets, prophets were in, in times past had the ability to foretell future things. But in our world today, we still have the residual gifting of a prophet in the, the gifting of a preacher. And so someone who has the ability to stand in front of a crowd and provoke them to make decisions for Christ. Someone who has the ability to, to stir in other people's hearts a desire for God and for faith, to believe God for things that seem impossible. That would be someone who has the gifting of preacher. Someone who has the ability to just communicate very clearly the simple truths of God's word, that would be a teacher. Now we have other things li listed here some of which are gifts that is, have ceased. We're going to cover those things more in depth later on, right? When we talk about cessationism more in the coming chapters, we'll address these things then, but, but it says after miracles, okay? So we have miracles um, listed here, the ability to do supernatural acts and wonders, then gifts of, gifts of healing. This is the supernatural ability to heal anyone, anytime, 100% of the time. We have the gift of helps. Now, this is one that we haven't heard much about yet, but this is the gift and the responsibility to serve other people. There are people in our congregation right now who are prone to helps. They see needs, and then in their heart, they're automatically stirred to go do something in order to meet that need. All right? So they see someone struggling. They see, they see an area of ministry that is lacking. They want to go, and they want to apply servicehood and, uh, uh, and uh, hospitality to that work. All right? They desire to serve people. I would say... Anybody that signed up for the daddy-daughter dance, right, who thought to themselves, what should I do ministry-wise, right? What, what is it I should give myself to? Oh, that sounds like fun, <laughs> going and serving people food and making sure that people are taken care of. That's a person who's probably prone to helps. They have the gifting of helps. There is the gift of governments, um, which has very little to do with politics or government itself. This actually is the ability to organize people and resources to make the work of ministry efficient. I actually did an interview with Pastor Mitch Dobson recently for the postscript. You'll see it come out here soon on this very topic, the gift of governments. It, obviously, if any of you know Pastor Mitch Dobson, you know that he has the, the gift of governments. He has the ability to organize people and create structures in such a way that helped make ministry more efficient. Since he came and, and, and joined himself to this church, uh, we've only gotten more and more organized. Um, pastors aren't always very good at that, and so he's helped a ton in that area. Then we have the diversities of tongues, which is the supernatural ability to speak in a known language that you've never studied, and we talked about that previously. We'll come back to some of this stuff later on. Verse 29 says, are all apostles? Okay, so that's a rhetorical question. Of course not. Not everyone can be an apostle. Not everyone can be a prophet. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? 
Now, now here's something very important that we're going to come back to. This verse 31 gives us a clue to, to some of the things we're going to address in future sermons. But it says this, but covet earnestly the best gifts, meaning that there are some gifts that are better than others. And just to give you a little bit of a clue, the ones that cease are probably the ones that are less important. Okay, that's just a clue. We'll come back to that. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. And now that's a clue for today's sermon, that there is a more excellent way in which you are to perform your spiritual gifts in the context of a church. There's an excellent way to be spiritually gifted. There's an excellent way to be a a servant in God's army, and we're going to address that in today's sermon. Now, all these gifts all reflect the fact that God has made each of us to serve in harmony one with another. So the lesson of 1 Corinthians 12 is this, that we should love how God has made us, right? We talked about that in depth the last time we were together. We should love how God has made us, and two, we should love serving each other. We should love to do it. It should be enjoyable for us to give of our time and energy and gifting that other people might be blessed and benefited. Now, to this point, there are some very important truths that we're going to cover in today's sermon. But before we do, I want to give an illustration that is basketball related. And so many of you are familiar with Kyrie Irving. You guys know who Kyrie Irving is? Okay, Kyrie Irving. I'm seeing thumbs down in the back. He's a very polarizing figure in the sports world. Now, he's probably the most talented point guard in the NBA. Um, now, Steph, Steph is an amazing shooter, and he's done so many things. Uh, I won't get into all of it. Okay. <laughs> Kyrie is probably the most gifted all-around point guard, traditional point guard in the NBA. He's phenomenal to watch. His ability to handle the basketball is insane. There's never been anyone like him. And yet, he is a polarizing figure. Now, he played originally for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Okay, so here's a little bit of history, if, if you're taking notes. Uh, he originally played for the Cleveland Cavaliers, and he got a couple rings there with LeBron James by his side. Okay, and so uh, he got accustomed to winning. Now, when LeBron left, uh, the winning dried up. And so, after a couple of, of, of difficult years... He decided to leave Cleveland and go to Boston. Now, if you know anything about the NBA, Boston and New York, those are the two, those are meccas for basketball. There are, those cities in particular are probably the biggest cities for basketball in the whole world. There's, a, there's an incredible tradition of basketball. There, any, any professional basketball player that finds themselves in Boston is very lucky because they're going to have a huge support. They're going to have a huge fan base. And that's how it was for Kyrie. When he got there, he was so excited. And in fact, in one of the very first press conferences that he did, he, he vowed to the city that he was going to continue to sign contracts there and he was going to stay in Boston. Now, here's the thing about that. After just a couple months, after the team was plagued with a little bit of injury, there's no way to, else to say it, but he just quit. He just quit. And, and, and by his second season, I mean, there was, there was no way that he was, no, and no one believed that he was going to stay in Boston. He had a terrible attitude. Um, in the playoffs, the Bucks knocked him out. He, had, he played terribly in the playoffs. And so Kyrie became a free agent when he was picked up 
right away by the Brooklyn Nets, where his best friend Kevin Durant played. This is a really long illustration. <laughs> I need some support here. Yeah, there we go. Okay. It's a long illustration, but I promise you it's getting somewhere. <sighs> so his best friend Kevin Durant's there in, in Brooklyn, so he p- gets picked up in free agency by Brooklyn, okay? And everybody's very excited. He's excited, and, and everybody's imagining Kevin Durant's probably the best basketball player in the world, um, if we're honest with ourselves. And, and, uh, and so them together, we thought, for sure, this is going to result in wins. And um, there were problems. COVID happened, the basketball bubble. Kyrie refused to get vaccinated. And so in New York, that meant he was basically ostracized. He was fined hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in his first season there. I think it was $800,000 and later on $500,000. And he didn't play and there was just a big mess and everybody started hating him. And he showed, to be honest with you, um, he showed a real lack of character. Now, despite all the potential of the Brooklyn Nets, this last week, uh, they traded both Kevin Durant to the Phoenix Suns and they traded Kyrie Irving to Dallas. Now, what's the point, Brandon? Where are we getting with this? Kyrie's value in the NBA has dropped over the last few years. Teams have expressed over and over again great apprehension to have him on their team or, or apprehension concerning acquiring him. Why? Okay, so if we analyze it, we can say this. He left Cleveland. He left the Cavaliers because they weren't winning anymore. Because things got hard. So instead of being loyal and sticking it out with the city who really believed in him from the beginning, instead of sticking it out, he left because the winning was stopping. Hard times, he quit. And so he went to Boston. And uh, he thought it would be awesome. It would be the perfect environment for a person uh, in the NBA of his status. It would be the perfect place to be, but... But he left because he felt that he had unmet expectations there. His expectations weren't being met. All the things that he thought that it would be, the environment, the status, the appreciation, it just wasn't there. It wasn't what he expected, and so he chose to leave. Now, he left Brooklyn because despite the fact that his best friends were there, that that it was supposed to be so exciting to, to be able to play with people that he cared about, his view was that he was mistreated, and his mistreatment caused him to look somewhere else because he felt as though he was being abused. He felt as though people didn't appreciate him the way that he should be appreciated because they didn't believe in him the way that he should be believed in. He decided, he decided, I'm going to go, I'm going to go somewhere else. So here's the deal. Despite his gifting, despite his talent, He has only proven time and time again that he's a terrible team player. He's erratic. He's unreliable. Why? Because he loves himself more than he loves others. That's why. His love for his teammates is conditional. It's based on other factors, selfish factors, that have nothing to do with the game, have nothing to do with loyalty, now, here's the, here's the reason I wanted to paint this illustration is because it was first, it was just fresh in my mind. 
But the other thing is, I think that people, that Christians today, behave the same way as it concerns church. That when, they're, when things get hard, they get difficult, instead of working through them and remaining loyal, they bounce. And, and when the, the environment changes or when expectations that they have aren't met, they have reason and excuse to leave instead of pressing in. And when, they, and, and, and when a person fails or finds themselves in a difficult situation where maybe they aren't getting the respect they think they deserve, they find a reason to leave. And this is what Christians do with church. Church is a very you know, optional environment. This, this environment for some of you is very optional. And at some point within the next year, there will be a turnover in this room of about probably 15%. Why? Why does it happen? Why do people quit discipleship? Why do people disappear? It's because ultimately they don't understand that being a part of church means to sacrifice in love. And so there's a danger that we as Christians face that if we don't learn how to submit our gifting and our love towards others, then the, the honest truth is we will, be, we will become vain in our Christianity. We'll become empty. We'll become worthless. So today we're going to talk about charity. And before we start, I want to ask us a question as follows, like we usually do, Okay. Do I understand true Christ-like love? Do I understand it? Does it make sense to me? Because the truth is, we, we can't begin to apply love. We can't learn to become love until we understand what love truly is. We have to understand it. We have to have a perception of it. So let's pray, because we haven't even started the sermon yet. The illustration was just like extra special for you. Just threw that on top. But we're going to get into it now, so let's pray together and let's ask the Lord to be with us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you are good, and we know that you're love, and that everything about you, from your written word to the accounts of Christ, um, to the way that we often feel when we worship before you, we know, we know that you're love, and you care for us so deeply. And um, you model for us so purely what it means to love each other. And so, Lord, I pray that as we open your word today and we consider just a few truths, this is such a, an inexhaustible subject, uh, as we consider just a few truths today, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to what it means to really love each other and to really give up, give up um, our wants, our desires that we might prefer our brothers over ourselves, we might prefer our sisters over ourselves. And so help us today. Teach us. Teach us what it means to love with a Christ-like love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. <clears throat> Let's start by reading chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned 
and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. So let's start by talking about love. Let's start by addressing one of the most popular verses in the Bible, one that people use over and over again, one that people often abuse in Scripture, to be honest with you, and that's this. 1 John 4, 7 says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. And he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now what this verse is saying is as important as what it's not saying. Okay, so let's start by what it, addressing what is this verse saying. Well, first of all, clearly it says that we should love one another. That we as Christians should love each other. It also says that all true love originates with and is of God. And so if it's not sourced in God, if it's not sourced in Christ, then it's not actually love. The love is a specific thing, and it flows through the Godhead. It also says that true love is only possible for a person to radiate or embody if they're saved. That true love is only performed and acted upon by people who are Christians, sealed by the Spirit of God, born again. And then lastly, it tells us that God is love, right? That God is love. But listen carefully, okay? God is love. But love is not God. Love itself isn't God. Now, God, God is love, but it doesn't work in the reverse. See, too many people in our culture elevate the concept of love over God himself. They're afraid of the implications of a holy, omniscient, omnipotent creator, of God, uh, creator God. They're afraid of that idea. They're afraid of those implications. They're afraid of his justice. They're afraid of his truth. And so what they do is they tame him by conflating the personage of his love with their personal view of love. So if they can imagine that love is God, then whatever they define as love, they just put that in the stead of God. They replace him. Because they're afraid that God is, in terms of the way the Bible defines him, is too narrow. That this God of love is too narrow in his thinking. And so he can't define love for me. I'm going to define love over here. And then I'm going to, to just say that God is love. And what I really mean by that is anything that I believe is love is now God. You guys understand what I'm saying? Our understanding of love must flow from an understanding of who God is, not the other way around. So let's investigate this further by addressing the abuse of the word love in our culture. Okay, so sadly, when we use the word love, we generally mean people and things that please us. When we use the word love, what we really mean is anything, any person that brings me pleasure. That's love. 
I mean, you understand, we do, I mean, our songs are filled with, with, with language of love. In pop culture, our music is just full of this language, and we use this word love, and it means, it means hookup culture. It means giving me things. It means stroking my ego and affirming everything that I say. That's what we've made love to be. And it's abuse. It's abuse. When you say, I love this song, okay, let's think about this real simply. You guys all, we all use language like this, don't we? I love this song. You turn it up and you and your girls bop in the car. Anyone that's ever been to Betty Ray's has said the phrase, I love this ice cream. If you've not yet been to Betty Ray's, we need to renew that this summer, that habit of Kaya going to Betty Ray's. Amen? I believe in it. I love this ice cream. Now, anytime you say, I love this song or I love this ice cream, you are confusing, you're confusing all of our international friends, actually. Because that kind of language to our international friends, whose English is their second language, that's weird to love ice cream. It's a strange thought. See, in English, when we say, I love this song, it's figurative. It's figurative language. It's not a literal romantic pronunciation. It's a dramatic way of saying, I enjoy this song. Or this ice cream is enjoyable to my taste. When I was a kid, I used to watch uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse, okay? You don't even know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Pee-wee's Playhouse. Now, I can't actually describe for you who Pee-wee Herman is. It would be be impossible. Uh, All I can say is that you should watch, at one point in your life, you should watch Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It's a movie. You should watch it. It's one of the greatest movies of all time. You should watch it just one time. I see a, a watch party in the future here perhaps after the Super Bowl, hit play on Pee-wee's Big Adventure, okay? (laughs) Amazing film. Okay, now, Pee-wee had a show. Now, one of the tropes of Pee-wee's Playhouse on the show was that anytime someone would say, I love this thing, then the response from everybody else in the room was to scream, then why don't you marry it? (laughs) Okay, do you guys, does anybody remember this? I need the old people to amen me over here. Yes, you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. They would say, well, why don't you marry it? And everybody would laugh, and it was really funny. There is an episode of Pee-wee's Playhouse that I remember vividly, where Pee-wee says, I love fruit salad. And then everyone responds with, then why don't you marry it? The remainder of the episode is about Pee-wee Herman marrying fruit salad. (laughs) They perform the ceremony. They perform the ceremony right there on the show. He says his vows to the fruit salad. The fruit salad does not respond with any vows. Um, But here's the deal. We live in a world that's not much further off in our view of love than that. You know, it's humorous. It's funny. It's funny to talk about. Ha, ha, ha. But the truth is, we all at some level view love just like that. And it points to the absurdity, the absurdity of what we put our love in or what we believe is loving us. We live in a world not far off from this level of abuse where 
love gives us license to behave however we want. And we want a God who ratifies our sins. So we say God is love, which is supposed to substantiate whatever we call love. And if you don't concede to that and accept the, you know, that person's view of what love is, then you become a bigot and a terrible person. And, and man, that's it's just too bad. It's too bad where postmodernism has taken us. Now, I say all that to say that God tells us that what we love needs to be derived from his word. What ought to be loved ought to come from this book. And, and today, we're going to look at a true definition of what love is. Now, as we do that, I want to set you up even a little bit further. Today feels like just an ent- like a setup over and over again, right? But, but here, here, this is important. I think this is important worth, and worth noting. That in, in the Grecian world of the first century, that in Corinth, they would have spoken Greek, right? And in the common vernacular, Greek vernacular, there would have actually been four words, four different words that they would have used on a day-to-day basis that would have meant love. And each of these words would have represented a different kind of love, a more multifaceted view of love. And, you know, because our Bible is written, our New Testament is written in Greek, and a very specific version of this word is used here in Scripture today, it's worth us noting and pointing out these different, different words. And so the very first thing I want to look at is the four words. The first one is this, is the word storge, okay? Storge is a word that they would have used in Corinth at the time, which would have meant to have affection or tender love toward other people. Now, this is the type of love that you would have towards family members, right? Someone in your family, someone you care about, a brother, a sister, a mother, a father. These are familial bonds. It's a familial type of love. And it's used in a compound word a couple times in Scripture. You can find one of these Greek words in Romans 12, 10. And it's translated for us, kindly affectioned in English, which I think is a great way of describing this word, kindly affectioned. Okay, so that would have been a word that people would have used. Now, Another word that was used in Corinth in the first century would have been eros, eros, which is an erotic and sexual type of love, right? It would have been romantic. This Greek word is not actually found in the New Testament, but the concept is. The concept of erotic love is found in the Song of Solomon. It's basically full of this stuff, right? You know, it's like the freaky book. You go there. You should go there for deep doctrinal truths about God's love for his church. But the residual benefit is that you learn a little bit about sex ed, I guess. Nothing wrong with that. Um, so there's eros. That's a type of love that they would have, uh, a word that they would have used to describe a specific kind of love. The next word would be philia, okay, which is brotherly love. Brotherly love. Deep friendship. Now, we know that the city of Philadelphia, right, you can see this parallel there, is the city, this is the city of love. Now, today is the one day that you get to hate the city of brotherly love, okay? You have permission. No, but, but, but this idea, this philia, this idea of brotherly love means deep friendship. It's a type of love that many of you have for one another, right? You should have for one another. Right? It's a brotherly or sisterly love. It can be found in James chapter 4, verse 4, this concept. 
Now, the fourth one is actually, this is the word that we're using today. Uh, this is the Greek word that's used in today's scripture, and that's agape. And many of you are familiar with this word. This is the Greek word used in the passage we're studying, and it means the highest and purest type of love. The highest and very purest type of love. Now, this kind of love has nothing to do with emotions or feelings, though, though, though it might produce in you from time to time emotion and feeling. It's a divine kind of love. Agape love is about attributing transcendent value to another person. Transcendent value. Value that goes beyond the temporal, physical. Okay, it's greater than any of the loves that we've already listed here. In other words, it's a form of love that is uniquely Christian. Christ himself taught the following about love, and I think it reflects the concept very well. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 says, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. It's similar to it. It's sim similar to the type of love that you should have for God himself. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Well, who's my neighbor? Well, anybody you're in proximity to. Anybody that you're in proximity to is your neighbor. You are to love people. You're to love them. To love someone with an agape love is to, to esteem a person as equal or greater than you esteem yourself. That's what agape love is. When you treat someone with the same or even greater care than you treat yourself, you are loving the way, uh, loving the way that Christ loved. Now here in 1 Corinthians, this word agape is accurately translated, charity. Now sadly, in our world today, we have relegated this word to, you know, uh, giving to an organization that's, you know, you know, doing some sort of social project, Right? When we talk about charity, we mean like giving to the Red Cross or, or something like that. And we've, we've taken the term and we've, we've kind of siloed it, which is sad. Because charity is the greatest kind of love that we can have for one another, one another. It's a very important and highly descriptive word for love. Because it means so much more than just giving. This is what charity is. Charity is a love that gives without expecting to receive. Charity is a type of love that doesn't just give, but it gives with a, whole, with, with a, a willingness to accept the fact that you might not ever receive anything in return. That's a big deal. God loves you with an agape love. He loves you with an agape love, and he, and he proved it, didn't he? He gave his only son to die for us because he believed that we were of equal value to his son. Think about that. <laughs> if it's a love, it's a love that esteems others greater than yourself or equal to yourself, well, he sent his own son to die for us. Why? Because he esteems us as equal to Jesus Christ. 
That's an incredible, incredible idea. 1 John 4, 9 says this. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love. Not that we love God, because you know, you know, we're not very good at that. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's how much love he has for us, that he was willing to sacrifice his son. So in Christ, we have the perfect example of charitable love. Charity can't be faked. It can't be faked. Charity can't be feigned. Because charity is reflected in one's behavior. It's a love that is harmonized by both word and action. So the Bible tells us that there are two things that should never be disingenuous, okay? And we're going to look at those real briefly. Um, sorry, this, kind of, this is kind of an all-over-the-place study so far. I, I promise we're getting back to the, to the verses in a second. But I think this is important for us to know. The Bible says that there are two things that should never be faked, ever. The first one is faith. Because faith can't really, it can't really be faked. I mean, you can pretend for us. But faith is a part of an agreement that you have with the living God. It's a spiritual idea. Faith, faith goes way beyond just your religious actions, right? Faith is something of the heart and the mind. It's a spiritual thing. It's made up, it's made up of a, a spiritual nature. And you can't really fake it, even if you think you're faking it. So this is what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 1.5 says, Now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, which means not faked, not hypocritical. So God is saying, God is saying that our faith ought not be faked. Second Timothy says the following. When I call to, re to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois, and thy mother Eunice, I am persuaded that in, that, that in thee also. Okay, so they had a faith that was not faked. It was genuine. It was real. Now the Bible also says that love ought never be faked. It shouldn't be fake. I mean, everybody can tell when someone's faking kindness and love. It's easy to see through. It's, why is it so easy? Why is it so... Um, why is fake love so transparent? Because you can't actually do it. It's not sustainable. <laughs> I mean, you might be able to do it in a singular interaction. But over time, people are going to see right through that. Why? Because love can't be faked. It's either genuine or it's not. 2 Corinthians 6.6 6 says, By pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, unfaked. 1 Peter 1.22, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. See, faith and love, they must be genuine if they're going to produce any spiritual life whatsoever. They have to be real if they're going to, if they're going to yield a harvest. Our love one for another, it has to be genuine because if it's not, 
this ministry will dry up. It'll die. Your love and your faith have to be real or you won't see any fruit in your Bible study. It'll be vain activity. It'll be vain activity. So here's the next key question. We got another one for you. What good are my spiritual gifts if I don't have charitable love? What good are they? We've done all this talking. We've done all this talking about spiritual gifts. We talked about being harmonized and unified as the body. Okay, but here's the deal. What good is any of that without charitable love? That's the question that Paul is going to pose for us here in our verses. And we're going to discover in 1 Corinthians 13 that spiritual gifting must be charitable or selfless or it becomes completely useless. 1 Corinthians 13.1 says this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become of sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Now let's, let's address this. I want you guys to understand clearly what this is saying. What is, the, what is this tongues of angels? So in, it, it's common. It's common in charismatic theology um, for, for people to use this statement as evidence that Paul spoke in what they refer to as an angelic tongue. All right? Now, we already pointed out last time we were talking about the, the, the gift of tongues, we pointed out that all biv- biblical evidence, every instance in Scripture that an angel speaks, they speak with the languages of men. They, they, they speak in the common tongue of people. We don't have in Scripture at one time where an angel speaks in a mysterious and unintelligible celestial language. Not a single instance. And so that's the first evidence there that Paul didn't speak in an unknown tongue. We never see him do it. There's no report of that. So what, are we, what is he saying here when he says this? Well, when Paul says, though I speak with tongues of men and angels, he's using hypothetical rhetorical uh, uh, language. That's what he's doing. Um, it's purposefully exaggerated. He's purposefully exaggerating. So let me give you an example. If I said, if I said to Eva, though, though I, this, this, you know, this is, Valentine's Day is coming up, okay? And so I might write her a card, which I have yet to purchase, but it's coming. I'll get a card, I'll write in it. I might say something like, though I crossed the desert for our love, I could not love you any more than I do right now. That I might say something like that. Does this mean that I actually crossed the desert? Could Eva go around bragging that Brandon crossed the desert for our love? No, she couldn't. Because this kind of language is hyperbole. The proof is that the proof that, that this is hyperbole for Paul is in the context. Okay? It's in the context. So a lot of times. When something sounds a certain way in the Bible, and you think to yourself, well, that was weird, keep reading. <laughs> keep reading the scripture. Keep going, because explain, the Bible explains itself. And so the proof that he doesn't speak in an angelic tongue and that this, that this is hyperbole is because he goes on to say that though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. He uses the same language to describe literally removing mountains with his faith. Well, we have no place in scripture 
where Paul actually uses his faith to move a mountain. That would be something worth documenting, I, I think. Um, I mean, we, we know some details about Paul that seem, sometimes you read about it, it's like this seems irrelevant. Uh, I think that the moving of a mountain would be one of those things that would get mentioned somewhere, you know? Tuck it away somewhere in there, right? Um, no, so we know that Paul, Paul didn't move mountains, and, and it goes on to say, though I give my body to be burned. Well, we know from the account of Scripture that that's not how, like, there's no account in Scripture of Paul giving his body to be burned. So what we must conclude from the outset is that Paul's not making a claim to speak in an angelic language. He's using exaggeration to emphasize the power and significance of love. He's exaggerating with a purpose because he wants to clearly define for us the severity and importance of loving people. So what is he saying? Well, he says, if we were to paraphrase, okay, if we were to make it more contemporaneous in the way that it sounds, we might say it like this. Though I be so fluent in tongues that I could speak every conceivable language that exists, and yet have not charity, then I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I could speak in every single tongue of man and even the ones that we wouldn't even know of, every, every conceivable language that could ever exist, though I knew how to speak in every tongue and I had that level of ability to communicate and don't have love, it's, it's like the sounding of brass or a tinkling cymbal. What does that mean? In pagan worship, it was common for there to be a call to worship, you know, um, in which instruments would have been sounded and people would have been called into the pagan temple to worship. It would have been similar to the call of worship that we see in Islam, right? So any, you know, uh, you know Muslim dominant city will have a call to prayer five times a day, right? And so people will stop what they're doing and they'll, be, they'll sound out basically an alarm to the city. There'll be a voice that comes over and people will hear that it's time to go to prayer, okay? And so what we have here is a similar thing that happened in Corinth during the time. They would sound these, these different instruments and it would call people to a season of worship. And these sounds would have rung out through the streets of Corinth. These are sounds that people would have been familiar with on a daily basis, the call to worship. And so they would have used symbols, and then also what was more common was for them to use what we see here is described as sounding brass, which would have been a large vessel like that created a gong-like sound, okay? And it would have been made of bronze or brass, as is described here, and it would have been large and almost like a cone-shaped, and when you bang on it, it would have created a kind of an amplified sound for the city. Now... Paul is using this language here to help us to understand the vanity of this kind of communication. Corinth was well known for, for this, these kinds of amplifications. And so Paul's point is though, though these sounds would have been loud, the sounds are meaningless because these sounds don't actually communicate anything. <laughs> They're vain. There's no message. There's no truth. There's no deeper truth than the sound of a gong and the tinkling of a cymbal. 
So now you can see the point that Paul's trying to make is this. Here's a key point. Charity gives purpose or meaning to our spiritual gifts. Charity gives purpose to our spiritual gifts, particularly our gifts of communication. Our ability to communicate truth one toward another is only substantiated by our ability and our willingness to communicate with love. It's love that gives scaffolding to truth. It's it's love one towards another that makes our words and the sounds that come out of our mouth have true meaning. What good is a preacher or a teacher if they don't exude or embody love for the congregation? What good is that person? According to Scripture, he's meaningless, he's vain, and every sound that he or she might make for the sake of truth is actually worthless because it lacks true purpose. See, the gift of tongues uh, represented the gift of of communication, to communicate effectively. Now, while it was a wonderful gift, without love, without God's heart, all of our words will be found wanting. All of our words that we ever speak They'll be found wanting. Now, he gives another illustration that further builds the context for for his point. Verse 2, he says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. What's Paul saying? In verse 2, the emphasis here is on what we know, knowledge. The emphasis is on what's going on up here and our ability to retain and to to make plain truth. See, the gift of prophecy being the ability to declare truth, and we know in a first century context that that some of these cases would have been a foretelling of the future. And so this would have required having access to truth that other people didn't have, right? To be able to prophesy and to speak things that are not yet known is the the ability to have information or access to mysteries that the the common person wouldn't have had. And so it goes on to say, all mysteries and all knowledge, meaning having an intellectual grasp of truths, even the hidden truths of the world. I mean, can you imagine? Wow, what, what a privileged position to be in, is to be a person in that first century when the word of God was not yet completed, but God was giving insight to that they might be able to provide for other people truths that they didn't have. Wow, what an amazing responsibility that would have been. And then it goes on to say, and all faith, meaning the gift of being able to believe God for all things all the time. Wow. I mean, I wish I had that. I wish I had the ability, the foolishness of faith, to say I just believe God all the time in every instance, every situation. And so he says, look, 
Even if you have the gift of prophecy, even if you have understanding of mysteries and, and all knowledge and, 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 and you've got an, an intellectual understanding of who God is that transcends and goes beyond what other people know, and even if you have the greatest faith so that you can see God so clearly that you can believe him for anything and have not love, have not charity, have not selflessness toward others, I am nothing. So Paul's saying, even if I was endowed with all the intellectual power and faith for the impossible, but I don't have love in my heart for God and, God and his people, then all of it's vain. All of it's vain. So here, here's the key point. Charity gives power to our spiritual gifts, particularly our gifts of knowledge and faith. Charity, charity gives power because what we see here is he uses this illustration of faith where he where you, it has the ability to move a mountain. Again, he's using hyperbole to exaggerate the power of faith, the ability of a prophetic word, the, 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 the mystery and the power of truth. And then he says, and you don't have love? It's empty. So charity itself gives power to our spiritual gifts, especially the gifts of knowledge and intelligence and the ability to believe. All these gifts, understanding and knowledge and faith, they're so wonderful. They're such wonderful gifts to have and powerful, powerful biblical gifts. But while they are wonderful gifts, without love, without God's heart for people, all our strength is actually just senselessness. It's useless. Everything that you learn in LFBI, useless. Everything, everything that you think you believe God for, everything you're trusting God for, that's empty of love, that's empty of unconditional love for God and the brethren, is vanity. Verse three, he goes on. He keeps topping himself with these things. He's just saying more and more. And he says, and though I, I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. What's Paul saying? In verse three, the emphasis on what we invest, what we give up, what we sacrifice. So he says, giving away of food to nourish the poor. I mean, when we think about love, what greater love is that than, 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 you know, someone who's willing to just freely give of what they have to people who are in need. And yet, people do it vainly all the time. They do it vainly all the time. Or the giving of my life as a martyr, that's what he's describing here. My, if I give my body to be burned which was a common thing even for Christians to endure in Rome in the first century. That was, a, that was a common martyr's death. And so even if I gave my life to be burned for Christ's sake, the ultimate act of sacrifice, right? The ultimate kind of investment. What's often said about the church is what is the church was born or birthed or harvested 
by the blood of martyrs? Wow. Paul's saying, even if I gave everything I own for the sake of the kingdom, including my life, but I don't have love in my heart for God and his people, then all of it is empty. It's nothing. It's nothing. Key point. Charity gives profit to our spiritual gifts, particularly those of personal investment, particularly the things that we sacrifice. It makes, it's the... It's the love that fosters the prophet. I mean, can you imagine a world where Jesus Christ came and died for us despite the fact that he didn't really love us that much? He just did it out of duty. Well, this is what God the Father told me to do. No, when we look at his life, what we see personified him is the greatest picture of daily loving people in every interaction, in every word, in every behavior, in every miracle, in every time that, that something, a gift of, of the Spirit is, is, is exemplified in his actions Every single time, it's a picture book of what it means to live daily in love for people. And so when he went to the cross, despite all the mistreatment, though he was hated, though he was spit upon, though the beard was plucked from his face, the thing that motivated him more than anything else was his deep and enduring love for a people that even though when he was mistreated, even though things didn't go as he would have liked them to go, even though, even though that the environment was not conducive for love towards him, he gave it all up. He gave his life. His blood poured out was a declaration of his heart. It wasn't just that he had to fulfill prophecy. He loves you so much. And it's that love that makes all of this profitable. It's by that love that this was born. Not by duty, but by love. You know, we learn from King Saul's mistakes that that sacrifice without obedience is nothing. Don't we learn that, right, from 1 Samuel, that sacrifice without obedience is nothing? In a very similar way, we learn here that sacrifice without love is nothing. Of course, we know that that this kind of of investment, the giving of your goods, the giving of your life, they have exceptional value. And and, and intrinsically, they're the kind of thing, they're the type of thing that evidence love, don't they? I mean, who would give their life for something that they don't believe in or love, right, ultimately? But that's why the hyperbole works so beautifully here, that he's picked the most extreme Christian-like actions that anyone could do or live or be And he reminds us that those things too, even those things could be empty and worthless if our heart is not towards God and his people. Paul is saying that even among the most wonderful and selfless acts 
and contributions to the mission. That without love, without God's heart, all our investment is ineffectual. Without value for others, your ministry has no value. If you can't attribute value to the people that God has called you to minister to, what is happening here? Gosh. Without value for people, your ministry, it has no value. You want your ministry to have value, don't you? You say to yourself, man, I want to be, I want to be fruitful. I want to be useful. I want to be a leader. I want, to, I want to guide people. I want to walk people in sanctification. I want to walk with them and I want to invest in them. I want to be, I want to be useful for God. I said, you know, I believe that. I want that so bad. And that's why I'm here in Midtown. That's why I'm here in Kaya. That's why I signed up for discipleship. That's why I do all these things and I, and I help with hospitality. That's why I do all that stuff is I, I want to be fruitful. Okay, are you, are you loving people? Do you love them? Do you see them as souls? Do you see them as having eternal worth in God's eyes? Do you see them as the point and the subject of Jesus Christ's very crucifixion. When you see people in this room or you see people on the street, do you see God's blood extended to them as a gift? See, I'm afraid that all of us have fallen prey at varying levels and varying degrees to the idea that love is actually about pleasing ourselves. And so ministry becomes about pleasing ourselves. The behaviors that we have, they, you know, I feel like church is loving and fun and exciting and exuberant when I feel like my needs are being met. And so that's how we think about church and that's what connects us to church is about, is about how we're served and how we feel inside. But the truth is that charitable love, the love of Christ, means that I'm willing to love other people with the same very love that I love for myself and even greater. That's what it means. So the question is, what motivates your ministry? You know, sadly, many of us are probably, you know, it's different from day to day, but some of us are doing ministry from a disingenuine love, from a place of disingenuine love. And our love often revolves around our selfish motives. Now, how do we get beyond that? I mean, that's the real question, okay, as we close out. That's the real question. How do we get beyond that? What if I don't know how to love? What if, when I grew up, my parents didn't love me the right way? What if I was abused? What if I was left alone to my own devices? What if I was, no one was paying attention to me? What if I never felt the love that I should have? What if I had a parent or both parents abandon me? I don't really know if I know how to love the right way. And there's some of you in this room definitely can say that. Or maybe, maybe something bad happened to you that screw, screwed up your idea of what love truly is. Maybe someone treated you poorly and it tainted and it made toxic the idea of love. Well, the Bible tells us it begins, it begins by adjusting our perceptions. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says this. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us 
and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So it starts with perception. Hereby perceive we the love. Okay, I don't know how to love. We'll start by perceiving love. Start by just sitting down and perceiving what is love. And the very first thing that it says, okay, this is what love is. Hey, listen, this is what love is. Jesus gave his life for you. He gave his life for you. And so then you receive that love. You, you understand that love. And then as you begin to receive that for what it is, then you have the ability to extend it. And it says to us, it says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, when we perform in that way of behaving and we see things from that perspective, it changes everything. We no longer feel abused. We no longer feel unloved. We, we no longer feel unaccepted. We, we, get, we get thrown into a cycle where everything is good even when it's bad. Even when things are at their very most terrible state of being. Even when you look around and everything looks like a, a dried up wilderness. If I can simply perceive the value of the cross and I can extend that same love to someone else, freedom and fruitfulness and profit and power and purpose beyond my wildest dreams. It's really, it's really that simple as learning that. John 15, 12, this is what J Jesus says. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And y'all, listen, that's the kind of love that we have to have towards each other. And I know I'm looking out in the room, and I see so many faces I know, and I know about your lives, and I know about your problems, and then I see these faces that are brand new to our ministry. And it's a big ministry, and there's a lot going on, and I, and I, I believe and I, and I hope that people are loving you well. But here's the deal. I don't, know, I don't know you as much as I'd like to. I mean, how can someone, how could this pastor say that he loves me when he doesn't know me? Let me explain something to you. I've seen the cross, and I see its value, and I know Christ's love for me. And it gives me the ability to love you even if I don't know you that well. It, it gives me the ability to care for you in a way that goes beyond uh, intellectual understanding. And I can honestly say to you, I love you and I want you here. I want you to be loved here. And I want you to learn how to love other people. And if we can do that together, we can change the whole freaking world. That's where the power and the purpose lie. Do you know Christ's love? This is where it begins. If you have never met Christ and if you don't know his love and you've never received him as your savior, today's the day to do that. There is no better day than after a sermon about love to receive Christ's love for the very first time. If you know up here, if you know or you're beginning to understand that Jesus Christ gave his life for you, that the Son of God came and gave his life for you, and you want that forgiveness of sin that he offers, today is the day to receive him. I'm going to have David come up and lead us in worship. And as we close, I'm going to pray, but there are going to be people lined up, counselors, they're going to be holding their Bibles. You'll see, you'll know them by the, the fact that they're going to be holding their Bibles. If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior and you don't know the love of Christ, 
Come grab a hold of someone and figure it out. Do not leave this place. Listen to me. Christ loves you so much that he's judicious as it concerns your life. See, love has to come with justice. And so he's given you this life as a gift that you might take advantage of it to receive him and make worth your life, to make it worth, worthwhile, to make life worthwhile. But if you refuse him, he loves you so much that he's willing to let you go your own way. He's willing to let you, in pride, march yourself right to the gates of hell. It's a very scary thought. But love can't exist without justice. Free will, the choice, he's given that to you because he loves you, because he doesn't want to make you do anything. But if you see Christ and you see the value of his love, and you know that he yearns for you, and that when he was on the cross that he thought of your very name, that he cared for you that deeply, today is the day of your salvation. Don't throw it away. Come forward and meet with someone. If you know that you're a believer and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, but there's something wrong with the way that you love people, something's broken in your perception of people and of God, come forward and get prayer. Agreed? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you're so good to us. Your word is so powerful. I did not even do it justice today. There's so much here to look at and consider as it concerns your love. Uh, really, the depths of your love are unfathomable. I cannot get my head around the extent of your love for me, and I don't deserve it. I don't deserve, I don't deserve an ounce of it. And so, Lord, I pray today that, that as you look out over your people, Lord, that you would speak to them very specifically, that your voice would come in the, in the form of conviction in their heart, and that they, would, that they would acknowledge, even right now, that there's a decision that needs to be made, that today is the day of their salvation, or today is the day of their renewal, that they would get right with you, and they'd reconsider the importance of loving your people the way that you've loved us. So help us with this, in Jesus' name, amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.com.